Welcome to Maker to Market. I'm your host, Amanda George. And on this show, we talk about product development and go to market, apparently. I'm happy to have Chris Winder back on this episode as a final wrap up. Chris, would you like to say hi to the audience really quick and just give them a quick introduction? Well, given that this is the first time I've kind of seen you this calendar year of 2024, happy new year, Amanda. Happy new year to the audience. And uh, it's great to be back. It was a really great year. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited for this conversation. So am I. Looking back on all of the episodes, I think we've had a lot of really great content that have come out of it. I know we did a couple of mid-wrap-up season episodes, but the later half of of our guests have really brought out their A-game in terms of strategy. You know, we've had guests like Brian Sperber, for example, of Michael Waltrip Brewery, who talked about his experience in the entertainment sector and then translating that into an operational standard brewing beer, which is a huge turnaround. And then you've got folks like Mac McCoy as well, who, you know, created several startups while in college and all of various different audiences. So it's been a very interesting sort of later half of the of the episodes that we've recorded with guests. What's sort of been the highlight for you in terms of some of the guests and what they've talked about on the show? Well, I think, you know, for me, I I am a bit of a geek for a good framework. And what they did with Waltrip Brewing and how they've kind of built kind of an ecosystem around it. They took the best of what they knew beforehand and turned that into kind of operating procedure is kind of one of, it's kind of something, you know, as we talked about before with, with Shane and with George, it's something that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Something that I've been getting back into with, with blogging and whatnot is kind of how do frameworks make your life easier. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a sucker for a good framework, too, but I also like to (laughs) break them apart, (laughs) clearly. Uh, But one of the interesting things that's kind of come up from a few of our guests on the later half of this as well is how easy the cloud era has made starting your own business. You know, it was really, really expensive before to get up and running, especially if you were a startup. Now it feels like anyone can do it. I mean, what's your take on that? Because I'll give you an interesting story. Over the break, I got pitched three tech ideas by family members. (laughs) That was my Jay-Z moment. I'm going to revel in it for a second. But I had to pull that Jay-Z move where it's like, that's not how this works. So it's it's super interesting that everybody thinks that, you know, that they're a tech genius. And it's so commonplace now to hear people talk about algorithms and AI, like as if they know everything about it. (laughs) So for you, like, I mean, what do you find the most interesting out of this whole conversation? Oh, I mean... As I feel like is my job on this podcast, I'm going to put I'm going to pull out my old man card. <laughs> it feels very reminiscent of the tech bubble from way back in the day, as the kids say. There's a lot of it that you're seeing, which is the same kind of you know Worldcom 2.0 and Enron 2.0, where where there's this silliness that the world is your oyster and everybody's going to make money. And part of me keeps looking at this, going. I feel like we're watching the lemmings before they get to the cliff and everybody thinks that they're, that they need to be at the front and they're just spinning their little legs going as fast as they can. And, you know, about three quarters of the three quarters of them are going to, are not going to stop before they fall off the cliff. I mean, do we need this many AI prompts that create a crappy image that no one wanted? I don't think we do. Maybe we do. Maybe I'm that old. <laughs> I mean, I agree, though. And you know what? This this is a great segue into the AI conversation as well. You know, we've talked a lot about AI in the show. And I don't know about you, but I feel like 
as a product marketer putting that hat back on, we really messed up the messaging of AI. Like AI is not new to the market. It has existed since, you know, the 40s. And we really messed up the messaging behind this because it became this, oh my God, it's going to take over everything to now it's been reduced what it feels like down to just basic image recognition and chatbots again. So I kind of feel like we, you know, made progress and then digressed really hard from the time chat GPT came out to today. Because I'll tell you with the imaging stuff as well, the thing that I'm most scared about is the deep fake images that are coming out because they're getting really good. I yeah. don't know if you kept up with any of the deep fake stuff. This is about to ruin relationships for the future. If you've watched deep fake on Netflix, it's actually a Spanish adaptation show. That kind of scared me because I don't think I'm prepared to deal with, with the backlash of this in the future, especially if it's used for nefarious reasons. I think it's really interesting. I think there's this, this weird thing that's happening where you have the old school kind of overblown and maybe the messaging gets well ahead of the technology. Typically, it's been happening for 100 years. But you also have this new era of consumerization and just how fast you can get it to the public. You know, how easy it is to not have that corporate governance that where somebody goes, should we do that? I get it. We can do that. But should we? We've kind of gone to the ask for forgiveness. You know, the tech bros have taken the kind of ask for forgiveness and fail fast as a reason to just kind of go too far. And I think it's a sad part of where we're at with this, this new generation of startups and tools is we are seeing some callousness in some of the productization of some of these things and just plain stupidity, in my opinion. It, you know what? There's a lot to be said about that too. And it's not just technology that gets callous. I mean, if you yeah. look at it, when the pharmaceutical companies first started out, it was this novel idea of let's get medication for people in pain, et cetera. And I'm forgetting the name of the movie. I think it was called Painkillers actually on Netflix that I was watching. And you know, pharmaceuticals had, or the pharmaceutical industry had government and policy and legislation in a chokehold. You're now seeing that with technology. And it's just interesting to watch that shift from pharmaceuticals starting off with that novel idea. And then you look at the, the fentanyl sort of a side of it and the opium side of it and what's kind of happened with painkillers and the history of that. It's almost like that's being replicated within the tech industry today, which is always interesting. And I think, you know, we've talked about governance before. How do you really govern the internet? There's a lot of governance that's happening that's not beneficial for the consumer and making life a little bit difficult for corporations as well to keep up with changes that aren't necessarily necessary. Let's put it that way. But the government is trying to control a lot of things on the internet. One of the things that was oversighted, and I think this was a huge fail, was releasing ChatGPT publicly and making it available for every single person. It should have been a paid for feature in my mind or a paid for a solution. I think if we spin it and we look at it from OpenAI's perspective, I think it actually, it served that free launch, served the purpose they wanted, which was to, to corner the market in a brand new market. And that's really, really hard to do nowadays. And they captured everybody's imagination and they beat the big three to to an area that they should have easily kind of been had all to themselves. So, you know, again, going back to that idea of the messaging and the product release perspective, I think you'd have to I'd, I'd look at that and say it's really successful. 
I think where I look at it, and again, going back to my love of frameworks, the governance framework way back when, three steps before they did the release, where somebody should have should have asked the question about where's our risk to get sued, didn't happen, and and that to me that's the that's the the lesson of that's the failure part of how OpenAI did that release is you know way back in the product development stream nobody really thought through can we make a, a free version that doesn't put us at risk for a whole bunch of negative lawsuits so to me you know the launch worked the product was kind of not ready for big public launch so there was there was a gap somewhere in that in that process that you're right they probably should have gone private and they could have could have done but again at the amount that they're bleeding in in capital to keep that thing up and running they needed a big splash <laughs> yeah fair point i mean dave calder and i actually talked a little bit about this too in terms of you know accessibility and how do you bring ethics into the conversation as well and you know to talk to that point who is ethically responsible for these launches? Because it's becoming more and more of a prominent part of, I think, a lot of people's roles. Whether you want to put that responsibility on product management, product marketing, or your cybersecurity team, how are we bringing in the human ethical aspect of product development for something as big as, as ChatGPT into this? And really and truly, who does that, why is, like, where should that responsibility fall? Because that's a big one to conquer. Has to be the CPO. If you release a product and your job is the chief something something and your job is to ensure that the company makes money off the products you release, liability and risk should be part of that conversation. I think you could make some strong arguments that Sam Altman deserved to be fired because he was over his skis and they did not do their job on the liability part. It remains to be seen whether they, how hard they get slapped. Was it worth it? It has to be on the product people. You can't have corporate governance understanding the the nuances of it. I think that's one of the things that we're we're going to see in the next couple of years is we do need to retrain a product manager where they really need to have a sense of risk management and other pieces and less about, you know, should the widget be yellow? We need to stop asking that question. And we need to start asking that question of if this gets big, what's the best thing and worst thing that could happen to us? And how do we mitigate that? Yep. And, you know, prime example of someone who actually did that and talked quite a bit about it was Evan Pankey and his design of his product, you know, especially working with public and, you know, being in the medical field, you have to take those things into consideration. Yeah. And, you know, on the topic of corporate governance, there really isn't a lot of oversight when it comes to that. It really does feel like the tech industry took that for granted and was like, let's just go full steam ahead. Doesn't matter what the consequences are. On another note, we have had some interesting conversations around AI and APIs as well. We've had a couple of guests actually talk about the best strategies on how to navigate this. And it seems to be a common problem across a lot of organizations as well, where everyone kind of failed fast altogether by purchasing and taking APIs from the best of breed in every solution, but never had a good strategy around it. You know, we had Jamie Buckland who came on the show who talked about API strategies and how to choose the right ones and what's the right fit. You know, what was your take on that episode? Because I thought it was a pretty well-packed episode with a lot of good tidbits in there. 
Yeah, I think I think for the audience, definitely worth a listen. It's a really interesting time. I think I think everybody built their strategy with on a set of assumptions that the economy was growing and and the DIYers they built their own sheds. We're going to be starting to build their own software. Then reality, as always happens with DIY, struck and you realize it's, it's really an edge group that's interested in it. And so I think we're going to see some, some diversification of API strategy. There's a really, you know, on that same topic, there's a really interesting survey done by a company called Retool that went through not the normal stuff of like that you see and for many of them around which ones are using, what language you're using, but they went through more of the details. It was really cool um, and it's worth, worth looking at. Because it really goes after that idea of some of the things that Jamie talked with and some of the things that you're seeing bubble up from the bottom around what actually makes sense. Are people buying them? Do they want to buy them? Do they want to buy them later? Do they need somebody to teach them how to use it? Like there's so much going into it. It's more multifaceted than people thought. I mean, I think too many people listened to John Dresses Horowitz and, and just got, oh yeah, everybody, software's eating the world and APIs are eating software. We should just do it. That never works out that way. Yep. And I will say back in my SC days, I am very guilty of selling my APIs as well for whatever product I may have sold throughout my lifetime because mm-hmm. if it couldn't be solved by our product. Well, guess what? Take our API and do what you will with it because that was always the the sort of, you know, interim solution in order to get what someone wanted. But yeah. brought up a really good point where he talked about not only seems like API management is one part of, of the strategy, but yeah. it doesn't seem like there's a really good, well thought out end to end from the time you think about adopting an API to the longevity of it and the use of it, sort of an end to end framework that speaks to how to actually adopt this properly. Because the one thing we talked about is not only taking APIs that worked, the API management is a whole nother strategy in itself. Then the API governance becomes a whole nother conversation. And then you need to layer in the cybersecurity risks with that as well. So, you know, having these different discussions, especially with different customers and people like Jamie and others in the industry, there really isn't a really good end-to-end sort of strategy on how to really manage all the APIs. There's tons of data being passed back and forth between different software companies and APIs are always talking to each other, but it just seems like this mythical beast that no one really has, you know, been able to, to slay yet. You don't think that it's really just an update of, of DevOps and, and software development lifecycle management? It, it feels like all the pieces are there in that, in that framework and in in those methodologies, just that we haven't updated them for at least the year 2000. Yeah. I mean, I could see obviously having dedicated teams that manage that, but that still doesn't always solve the problem of the data itself. And I mean, this just goes back to some of the classic information management sort of pieces as well, where it's how do you really determine what's valuable, not valuable? You can ingest a million pieces of data or you know trillions of pieces of data from several different sources. What's the value of all that data to the business? And I think that's the bigger question that's being asked at this hour especially since many corporations have gone down this route of let's take as many APIs as we can, try to do something with it. And now we're sitting on a ton of unstructured data that really isn't usable or feasible and is costing us money. So I think that's where the conversation gets a bit interesting is what's the value of the data to you and are you actually using it? Because from the conversations I've had with several folks about this last year, it seems like they just ingested a ton of data, but it actually isn't doing anything for the business 
or has a good outcome for anyone internally. Which is the same conversation we've been having for 50 years. Yep. <laughs> I mean, the reality is we just got stupid and lazier. Like that's that's all the APIs allowed people to do. It allowed everybody in the business to pretend that magic happened and we could just be stupid and lazy. You cannot get away with building a product or expanding your business without having a governance reference, without having a, a logic and a people process that defines value to the business. And we've, we've farmed out that strategy to APIs or AI and said, well, we'll just do it all, put it all in there and it'll figure it out for us. Well, it doesn't, it never did, it never will. And I think, you know, that's one of my aggravations with, with some of this is we keep looking for new, you can't farm out the strategy. You have to do it. You have to have a plan. Yeah. And I think that's going to be super important, especially as a lot more companies start to adopt yeah. AI practices. I think that's where the biggest change and where those questions are really going to come to light is what's the value of all of this? Because we've seen great examples of how AI can transform a business internally. You know, look at Copilot, what it's doing for Microsoft 365. Is it helpful for me personally? Not really. At least I don't think it has been yet. I haven't seen a benefit. I've also had to do a few more clicks than normal with Copilot being introduced, which has also been a little bit annoying. So from a UI perspective, it's like we took two steps back by implementing this new AI strategy, but also it has not made my life any easier, which is the whole promise and delivery of AI was that it was supposed to automate and make our lives easier. And especially now that you're seeing everything being reduced to a chatbot within AI. Yeah. Truly and truly, I mean, I have, we have an IT bot internally already. Half the time you ask the IT bot a question, it just tells you to put a ticket through to IT so that a live person can answer it. And you're starting to see that with even customer service reps as well. You yeah. go through the automated menus, you click what you want. Sorry, invalid response. Let me put you through to a rep anyways. So you're starting to see some of this come back and fall backwards as people try to implement those strategies. I mean, what's yeah, your- and they fired everybody who can actually answer the question. <laughs> yeah, this is the interesting part, because as yeah. much as people want to think that AI is going to replace you, we are so far away from this. And you're actually seeing some backtrack in that motion, too. I mean, look at self-service checkouts. Self-serve was like, oh, my God, it's going to be fully automated. We're going to change cashier jobs. Now you're seeing high rates of theft because it's easier to get get away with it. So now you're bringing back cashiers and, and closing the amount of self-checkouts that are there as well, which is always interesting to see. Yeah, I think I think when we start talking about the AI and these strategic pieces, I really think we're, because it's so early in the day and because it blew up so fast and caught everybody by surprise, I think we're still at the throw poop at the wall phase. I think you're still, I don't think, Anybody has a good enough, like I've seen some really interesting frameworks, but they're not simple yet. Like a, there's a Eckerson group, Kevin Petrie does this about every two weeks, has a new framework for managing data and AI. And it just keeps getting bigger and wider. And there's just more, there's more bubbles in it. And I'm just like, when are we going to start getting to layers? Like it's such a layer cake. It's like one of the one of those crepe cakes that have so many layers you can't tell what where one layer starts and the next ends. That's what it looks like. Whereas if you look like a nice cute architecture, it's got like maybe 3 or 5 layers and it looks like a cake. Yeah. We're hoping we get there soon, but it's really 
I wonder how much of this is we don't train anybody to do their job anymore. Yeah. Like I, to me, that's part of the root cause here is nobody gets trained to do their job. They get thrown into an island because, again, going back to your comment about interpersonal, they get thrown in an island. They have no support system. They don't know who actually knows anything. They have a hi- they have a hierarchy. And they have a list of people that won't talk, won't talk to them anyways, unless they put a meeting calendar meeting in their thing. And then half the time they don't show up. Yep. Not that I'm bitter and skeptical or anything. No, <laughs> you've kind of hit the nail on the head there because that's exactly what it's like working for a SaaS startup. I mean, it is, you're expected to know everything. You get in on day one and you're supposed to hit the ground running. There is, you know, a lack of training in a lot of, of startups, which is a huge issue. I've, you know, been through a lot of startups where some had training, some didn't. And the ones that had training was valuable. The ones that didn't, I felt like a fish out of water, which wasn't helpful for anybody. And you're kind of all blubbering together, you know, wailing your tail with no water around you. And everybody's doing the same thing. You're all stranded on the beach waiting for the tide to come back in to take you back out to the ocean. Her messaging is on point though. Oh yeah. (laughs) That was one of my better analogies. But at the same time, I mean, the lack of training is definitely an issue, but also there's an ego that comes with a lot of startups these days as well. Everybody wants to be the next Salesforce. And I always hated hearing that term. There's a reason why everyone can't be the next Salesforce. There's a reason why, whether it's product, people, company, structure, process, there's a lot of reasons why startups don't make it. And I think with the pandemic, you know, it's horrifying to see a lot of my colleagues get laid off with the pandemic, but it was necessary because money was flowing a little too freely at one point where anybody with an idea could have a startup. Didn't mean that it was always the best experience. I mean, you have to, you learn, you learn quick and fail fast and and that's the way you learned it in startup land, but you can't carry that throughout your entire career. And I think that's a lesson that I've learned and had a few folks reach out in startup worlds that have uh, kind of asked questions about my own sort of experience there. And I think that's, the gist of it. It's like everyone's expected to know how to do things, but yeah. you're not trained on it. And asking for help either works or it doesn't work depending on the organization that you're in and the culture that's there. And that's another big one too. You know, company culture is a big is a big sort of question mark. We talked about this with Matt actually, where we talked about how does incorporating culture into the workplace because he has three different business startups. How did that impact? How did you influence and build each one of those organizations? And, you know, everything from the market fit to how to build the organization itself to how do we get the people process down was definitely thought through. But you don't always see that in every organization. No, no. And I think I think that's where this myth of the Ubers and the Salesforce, where it's just organic growth and just people just rolled their sleeves up and got stuff done. It was not that easy. I mean, it, it, it looks that easy when a company is now thousands and thousands of people and there's layers and layers and, and there's workflows and all that stuff. But at the time, there was still a conversation, right? You didn't just go out and go rogue and buy a big, huge thing without, without anybody else in the company knowing what you're doing. It may have been easier because it was a conversation rather than a 12-page you know, business case. There's still somebody who checked you on things, on the successful ones. The, the unsuccessful ones are the ones where they go, yeah, 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 just put it on the corporate card. Yeah. 
or, you know, the monthly uh, sales meeting where you're dropping your numbers and doing the check-ins and why isn't your pipeline any bigger or why is this deal stuck in, in this phase should be at a 90% close rate. Yep. We've all been through that. I mean, I've been at a few companies too that have IPO'd and this was actually brought up by someone last week that I was chatting to. How did it feel to work for two companies that IPO'd? I'll tell you for the amount of work that I put in and for the payout that came after, it was sadder than my commission checks. I'll say that. So (laughs) was it worth it? It was definitely worth the experience to kind of learn, you know, fast and fail fast as well. You know, on the topic of culture as well, it's very interesting to see how development has changed over time as well. You know, one of the conversations that we also had with Lance Johnson, for example, he brought up a great little segue there in terms of where he sees AI benefiting the development sector, which is imagine spending less time coding and actually just being able to troubleshoot because that's most of what people are spending time on or being able to do research or having to write out test cases and have it automated. And, you know, that brought up a really interesting point because development really has changed over the years. There's the Hollywood depiction of what someone does, but now there's the everyday, you know, you ask a developer what their day looks like and every developer is going to tell you something different. There are those that solely work on bugs and bug fixes. There's the ones that have to troubleshoot code and spend a lot of time research and reading online just to kind of figure out what's going on. And then you've got the ones who are working on net new projects who also are doing quite a bit of troubleshooting. So their roles have changed drastically. I mean, what's your take on where AI can help development there? Because it is an interesting one where I could see potential more so than any other industry. Yeah, I think I think there's a couple areas where I'm really enthusiastic about the use of AI and, and kind of the development cycle. One is kind of the brilliant boring, right? It's the idea that that probably the right way to do that exists. And while while we're not talking about plagiarism, there is a expected and standardized framework to build something that will allow you to develop faster and focus on the unique value part of what you're going to build that's different than anybody else has done. And so I think that idea of, of how AI prompts and AI code writing can help with the general frameworks within a language and refactoring across languages is a really interesting one that has a lot of potential for both developers and for you know, these gaps we have in existing software. I think there's a really interesting use case. The other one is the one that you mentioned, which is really around test cases and QA. I think the, the whole problem of being human is you need to go deep into a problem to understand it. The whole problem of going deep into a problem of understanding it is you no longer care about everything else. And so the, the upside of AI helping you run those test case, write those test cases, helping you identify potential problems based off of what it knows about what's gone wrong in the past, is that maybe you, you lose some of your bias for what you know always works. Oh, that's fine. That worked in this other piece over here. So maybe there's a real value in using AI for some of those repeatable, boring bits that kind of just, once you get senior enough, you do them in your sleep. But when you're a junior developer who, who let's be let's be real here, writes most of the code, you don't know what you don't know, right? And so if you can have AI both A, help with the training gap and make sure that the finished product that comes out of a junior developer is ready for market, I think there's some real value in in adopting that as a technology. It doesn't replace the developer. It still keeps them as a unique 
unique creative influence on what the product is, but it does allow for some standardization that will make everybody's life easier in the long term. No, absolutely. And I think one other benefit that may come out of this as well, and Lance had also brought it up, is is speed to development and cost. Because development time is costly. If there is a way to make that cheaper and more effective and utilize that for not only just organizations, but even just for outside, you know, sources as well, that would be a huge time saver and a win for everyone in the industry, I feel. There are some really interesting applications of of AI. And I think that's the one that I'm most excited to kind of see how that plays out in the future. Because as much as everyone wants to believe that it's the cashiers that could be replaced, I don't feel like we're anywhere near that. If anything, I think AI is most beneficial for those that are already utilizing it internally. And I think they're probably the ones that are going to benefit the most from it as well, because I think it'll help them do their job better, quicker, and a little bit faster than they are able to today. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the key things why AI took off the way it did, right? Is because everybody's exhausted. I mean, if the pandemic doesn't happen, would it have taken off? I actually don't think it would have. I think it would have done the same thing that RPA and all those other things did, where it was an ooh and ah technology, but when people dug into it, they went, yeah, this is not the golden grail, the golden goose. Yeah, I think it would have gone that way. But I think whether we talk about the way we had to adopt new technologies that weren't really standardized and kind of fill the gap so that we could keep people productive because we literally could not bring them to the office. Or it's some of the things, some of the ways that in person tried to cover their gaps in customer service because people couldn't come into work. Yeah. I think there was a real, I think there was a real intrigue in that AI for automation and the chatbot that speaks to you. They're kind of poised for that they wouldn't have been poised for without the pandemic. Yep. And I agree. Now, I may be contradicting myself a little bit here, but this one's a bit of a fun question. (laughs) You know, we went back to this archaic thinking that being in an office is much more efficient. And personally, and you can chime in on this and weigh in on it as well, I feel like I'm way more productive at home because I'm able to, first off, there's no distractions. I am my own distraction. That's the only thing. I'm the only person I can blame for being distracted. But I find that I am much more productive at home than being in the office. And for the few times that I am in the office, it's great to see everyone, but it becomes a social gathering more so than me being productive. Yeah, it's a two-part problem, right? I think part one is the personal element. I I 100% agree with you. I think you're, as a rule, when you're isolated, you can be more productive. That's why the, you know, you saw it when you went from, Offices that had doors where people could shut the door and say, hey, I'm not available and they could get their stuff done to the cubicle farms and people were just inundated with constant noise. You do, you start to see productivity decrease and then you start to see it come up again when we, we re-isolate people so they can get so they can move to a GSD model. But and this is where we go to part two. But. If I'm an organization, I'm actually not looking, or if I'm a good organization, I'm looking at individual productivity. I'm looking at organizational or group productivity. And if we go back to the the, the conversation we had around the, the Gen Zs, where they just don't, they haven't been trained. The easiest way for a human to get trained is another human. So if you, the best way to have your junior employees get trained, and I think it was uh, Benioff that said this, 
it may not be that this, the irony here is that the senior people do much better working by themselves because they know what they're doing. The junior yeah. people have no idea what they're doing. And so left in, on their own, they flounder. So if you're an organization that's looking for a smooth transition from your young youngsters to your oldsters, you need them to be in one place every once in a while. And so it, it really causes that trouble where if you look at a departmental productivity, it's probably lower than you would anticipate because the juniors are not as productive as they should be, or they would be back in the day when everybody was in the office and you actually had a senior person who was losing productivity, but they're doubling on the youngster's productivity. So I'm somewhat sympathetic to the argument that the office is more, more productive. I just hate the, the hypocrisy of most leaders that are just saying that, just trying to equate you know, individual laziness with it. It's not that simple. And it just boils my blood when they try and turn it into that. There is a reason that maybe we need to figure out the right balance. Yeah. People in the office and people at home. But don't try and tell me that that it's because every person is not doing their job. Yeah. And, and you know, it's a fair assessment to make as well. And, you know, there are some people that do love going into the office. If that's you, by all means, you're more than welcome to go in. You know, maybe that's the right person to to be the trainer for a junior person. Now we're almost up at time here and I do want to get your thoughts. What are you most excited to kind of keep an eye on and trends that you're hoping to see come out of 2024? Oh, so I just (laughs) actually wrote a blog on this because I think it's a really interesting time to be a developer and to be an entrepreneur because you do have so many options. But I think I'm most excited that some of the things that I'm seeing on the underlying is that recognition of the importance of staging things so that you can learn. You're starting to see the the value of education, the value of just giving your knowledge away, coming back. This was a big thing when I in the 80s when I was younger. People would write books with the idea that they were going to be given away for free. You know, we tried to do that with blogs, but they turned into sales mechanisms. I think the idea of sharing your knowledge is starting to make a bit of a comeback. I'm seeing a lot of really just random things, not just on Medium, not just on Flipboard, not just just on everywhere. And and I love that aspect of it because it means that I can expand my skill set. So that's the one thing. The idea of learning is coming back. I think we've slowed down enough that we can think about learning now. Yep, I agree. Well, Chris, it was great having you on the show again. It is always a pleasure to have you on here. And I do have to thank our uh, sponsor. So thank you, Open Text, for sponsoring this season of the Maker to Market podcast. Great. 